Before I left uh, Washington, D.C. this year, I took a bit of a survey about New Year's resolutions. And I did it at the uh, beginning of 96 also, just asking what people were thinking of. And the vast majority, mostly everybody, had something to say like, I want to be kinder to myself. I want to be more present for my children, more open-hearted in my life. That was, that was what most people said. Now I have to tell you, there was one man that said he wanted to start a mushroom farm in his basement. <laughs> Somebody else wants to perfect Thai food. But for the most part, <laughs> what I think we find the more we deepen our practice is that is our intention to be more caring. The Pali word bodhicitta means the awakening heart-mind and the natural expression of our heart-mind that awakens is to care, is to be kind. The Dalai Lama was quoted as saying the following, said, I'm not sure why people like me. (laughs) He's not sure. (laughs) We know. He said, it can only be because of one quality, that I value bodhicitta, I value caring. I don't claim to practice it, but I know its value. (laughs) Characteristically humble, yes? (laughs) Just to value it, that's an amazing thing. Just to sense that if we care about caring, it helps to reconnect with what's true. So tonight I'd like to talk about the cultivation of bodhicitta, the natural awakening that happens, how it's cultivated, how it expresses itself. And just to start by saying that in Asia, the lotus is considered to be a sacred symbol of awakening. And many of you probably know the mantra, Om Mani Padmi Ham, the jewel is in the lotus. And what it points to is really that we all are that lotus. It's not the Dharma, the lotus, awakening's not happening somewhere else. That all of us, as we sit here, are this unfolding being, this awakening being. And that what we discover in that awakening is the jewel. It's been called the heart of perfect wisdom, compassion. We discover that jewel. Now, it's interesting to reflect on the nature of a lotus. What we mostly know about the lotus is that it floats in a freeway on water, and it's very beautiful. And we also know that its roots go down into the mud and that the reason it's alive and the reason it unfolds, the reason that we awaken, is that we're nourished by the mud. The Tibetans say that it's the mud banks of passions that we awaken from. That's encouraging, isn't it? (laughs) So that's one thing about the lotus, that it's nourished and awakens through the mud. But there's something else that I just recently heard about that's really interesting also, which is unlike most other plants, the lotus not only has heat, but it is able to keep its heat constant. It burns starch like humans do. So what happens is that this plant is able to not only attract insects, but really support them in feeding and reproduction and enabling them to take flight. That's what having this heat does. So this is a really nice metaphor for what's happening, that we awaken just out of the circumstances of our life. And in that awakening, we're able to provide care and warmth that helps other beings to do the same. Now, what we discover here at retreat, 
the instructions are simply to be with what is, to let whatever comes up be the place of mindfulness. And what we start discovering gradually, and what really builds confidence is that when we do pay attention, we open to a sense of spaciousness. There really is a sense of freeing up when we recognize what's happening. But as you know, there are many, many moments when we forget. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time in this talk about how we forget, how we get identified in the weather or in the mud or however you want to think of it, so that rather than nourishing us, it creates suffering. One description I love, and this is from Pema Chodron, is that we're in a predicament called the big squeeze. And this big squeeze is that on one level, each of us intuits our Buddha nature. There's not one of us here that hasn't touched in some way that sense of really caring or really being present, sensing our wisdom. We intuit that. And yet every day, many moments every day, we forget and get caught and go to sleep and get caught up in all the conditioning that Wendy talked about two days ago, get caught up in grasping and resisting and fighting our experience, in hate and anger and fear. So when we get identified, when we forget that these weather systems, this mud can nourish us, when we forget that and think we are that wave of experience, we are that grasping, there's suffering. And the big signal of getting lost is when there's a sense that something is wrong. Just watch. Anytime there's a sense of not okay, it's a flag. That means in some way our sense of being has contracted into the shape of what's going on and we've forgotten a larger sense of our existence. What happens when we think something's wrong? We want to escape. We want that situation changed, so we go about trying to fix it, trying to adjust things, trying to control things. We can see it really clearly with the shadow kind of emotions, fear and anger and, and grief. When they come up here at retreat, it's, I saw it today when talking with some of you in interviews, the different ways we try to leave. With fear, we leave in restlessness, We sometimes go to sleep on it. We try to ignore it. Mostly we spin out in stories about what's going on. We do anything but sit down in it, bring a mindful, caring presence to what's there. Carl Jung wrote at one point that all our suffering, all our neurosis, is from those parts of our psyche that are unfelt, that have been untouched. So our practice is really to open to them, and our conditioning is to run away. This is a story about Melarepa, who's uh, one of the lineage holders of the Kagyu lineage. He's a hero and a crazy guy and a loner, and he meditated wholeheartedly for many years. And one evening, as the story goes, Melarepa returned to his cave after gathering firewood, only to find it filled with demons. They were cooking his food, reading his books, sleeping in his bed. They had taken over the joint. Now, he knew about non-duality of self and others, but he still didn't quite know how to get these guys out of his cave. Even though he had the sense that they were just a projection of his own mind, all the unwanted parts of himself, he didn't know how to get rid of them. So first he taught them the Dharma, compassion, emptiness, how poison is medicine. Nothing happened. The demons were still there. Then he lost his patience and got angry and ran at them. They just laughed. Finally, he gave up and just sat down on the floor saying, I'm not going away, and it looks like you're not either, so let's just live here together. At that point, all of them left except one. Melarepa said, oh, this one is particularly vicious. We all know that one, the one that sticks around even when everything else is gone. And he didn't know what to do, so he surrendered himself even further. He walked over and put himself right into the mouth of the demon and said, just eat me up if you want to. Then that demon left too. 
the moral of the story, when the resistance is gone, so are the demons. So I love that story because there's something so simple. Okay, just stop fighting it, right? And yet we do keep fighting. We keep the armor on so that we don't have to face the demons and we definitely keep the armor on so that other people can't see them. And there's a real difficulty about that because the more we keep doing that, the more it reinforces a sense that there's an enemy inside. So just a closer look at how we do that, how we hide our vulnerability, our shadow from each other. It's interesting. You can see it here. We do it at home in all sorts of ways, but it's clear here in one very obvious way. And I noticed it when I was here at the three-month retreat. When it comes to walking slow and eating slow and looking like we're walking slow (laughs) and eating slow, we all, there's a norm here. There's a certain way to do it. And we have to admit it. It's kind of like hangs in the air, looking good. So, <laughs> so what happens is in any moment that we're trying to look like we're walking slowly, we're not there touching the ground, really resting in the experience. We present ourselves. One of my gurus, Gary Larson, described it this way. <laughs> this is a cartoon. There's an f- auditorium full of professors, and they're all listening to a speaker who holds a duck. They all hold ducks, too, except one alarmed man. The caption says, Suddenly, Professor Leibowitz realizes he has come to the seminar without his duck. (laughs) (laughs) Or this one. This is sharks figure out why swimmers are fleeing them. Whoa, our dorsal fins are sticking out. I wonder how many times that screwed up things. Any way that we pretend that we try to make an appearance alienates us from how it actually is. There's a line that the dying process begins at birth, but it accelerates at dinner parties. You know that one? (laughs) (laughs) So we get caught in how we should be, and we disconnect from what's real. Most of us have experienced just how painful it is when we hide things from the people closest to us, when what's vulnerable, messy, raw, we don't let be known. Tremendous amount of suffering in this world and and distancing and lack of intimacy from what we keep from each other. The secrets we have cause so much pain and confusion. Again, I give you an example, a little story to illustrate, and bear with me on this one also. (laughs) In this one, two men who are good friends are talking, and one's very upset, and he's telling the other this story. He said, "At at the office today, a terrible thing happened. He's described how he has this secretary, and he said, and she's got very large breasts, and they distract me, and, and so I... I just get all muddled. And and today, when I came into work, she said, how's the weather outside? And I said, well, it's kind of nipply out. And I felt so ashamed and embarrassed. And his friend said, oh, don't feel so bad. This happens all the time. It's called a Freudian slip, and it happens to everyone. Why, just the other day, I was out to breakfast with my wife, And I meant to say, please pass the sugar. And instead I said, you damn bitch, you've ruined my life. (laughs) (laughs) It comes out somehow, right? (laughs) So we hide from each other and cause pain. And it mostly comes because we hide from ourselves. It takes a lot of courage to face ourselves, a lot of honesty. And yet we get caught up in stories of how we should be, how we want to be, and we don't face ourselves. Uh, One most basic way that we get lost 
is that we have these ideals about what it means to be a spiritual person or a good person. And it's very hard for us to pay attention to what's happening in the moment when we're constantly referencing to how it should be. A story about a client of mine I'd like to share who grew up in a way that, um, in a very repressed type childhood like many, with all sorts of messages of how she was not good enough and um, how she should be. And, And she was very sexually repressed. She felt a lot of sense of being sinful and that she should just live the straight and narrow and true and got very early on involved with um, spiritual life and became quite a good spiritual student on the path in the sense of read all the books and listened to all the tapes and attended all the classes and sits Roderick straight up and looked good in a lot of ways and then started coming for counseling. Big mistake. (laughs) It undid a lot. Um, One day she came in and she said, you know, I'm trying to decide tonight whether to go to meditation class or to go get a video. And when she gets videos, by the way, they're always educational videos, of course. (laughs) Um, so So that's what she brought in. And I asked her her intention. I said, well, what would your intention be if you were going to um, go to meditation class? And she said, to feel good about myself, to feel like I was doing the right thing. I said, "And, and getting the video? She said, well, I wanted to get a different kind of video this time. And she gave me a look. (laughs) And she said, to have fun, just to kind of do something different. So naturally, I said to go get the video. I wasn't teaching that class. (laughs) She went, she got it, and an interesting thing happened, which is that she fell in love with the lead. I don't know if this is something that's happened to anyone that anyone knows, but she really fell in love. I mean, she kept watching it over and over again, and it became this really big thing. And what happened in addition to that was it broke open all these unfelt passions and longings. She had been living in a very cloistered way for many years. She was in her 50s and considered herself way over the hill. And she wasn't. And she had to discover that. And for months it was really difficult She really struggled with opening to and acknowledging all these layers of her emotions and passions that she just had not wanted to include in her self-concept. But very recently, she told me that she touched joy for the first time. And she said that she felt joy because she felt like she was becoming a real person, just felt real. To get away from these ideas and to touch directly our experience requires just what we're doing here is in our meditation practice, beginning to recognize the stories. To do that over and over again, there's no way to touch directly our experience of the moment when we're spinning off in stories. So that's as we did this morning when Jack gave the instructions, more and more there becomes a real commitment to notice when we're off in thoughts, to notice when we're lost, and in that moment of noticing, to open up and reconnect with what's really here, to ask the question on some level, and it's kind of an investigation, what's true right now? What's really here? What we find is all the way, as we do that, is we very quickly spin off again. So in a sense, we become very, very awake to the whole process of getting lost in thoughts. When I was here uh, during the three-month retreat, I was only here for one month, I got plenty of experience in, in spinning off. And just to tell you, one sequence of it which was really telling for me. What I was struggling with, the weather system of my retreat was a lot of physical sickness and pain. So the stories that were coming up around it were, this is never going to go away, I'm I'm not going to be able to make it, I'll never really be able to have a good meditation. 
And this will be with me for the rest of my life, and it means I'm a bad person, because in some way, if I was really balanced and spiritual, I wouldn't be getting so sick, and on and on. I spent a lot of time kind of waiting to feel better so I could have a good meditation. Finally, somewhere in me, I went, wait a minute, this is it. This is, this is how it is right now. And began to just see the stories and drop in and really directly just feel the sensations that were going on in my body. And as many of you are discovering, as soon as I began to really connect with what was real, there was a sense of freedom. I felt more intimate and real with myself, and there was space. I could begin to see what we do see, which is it wasn't such a solid, heavy thing. It was changing, moving. There was space to relate to and not from the pain. So I began to really feel a sense of not only spaciousness, but real compassion towards it all and freedom and felt, started feeling a sense of connection to the other people in the retreat and belonging and felt very happy. And that day that I was feeling just peaking in all of that, I was on my way to an interview with Joseph to report how I had brought mindfulness to my pain and opened to spaciousness and On my way to the interview, there was a note posted on the board for me. And I looked at the note, and as many of you know, there's a a guideline not to um, use fragranced products, body care products here. Well, the note said, there has been a complaint. Somebody has noticed that you're wearing products with fragrance. Could you please check your body products and so on and so on? Immediately, I'm bad, something's wrong. I started computing how many people had smelled me. (laughs) I didn't know if I could show my face in the hall. So hours of shame and, again, stories and stories. Then after a number of hours, this wry smile of recognition. Oh, okay, so this is... Okay, so this is what I'm supposed to meditate with. So drop the stories, come into a direct connection with the shame. And again, a sense of compassion and and a bit of ease. And I decided I would come back into the hall after all. (laughs) I went back to sit on my zafu, and there was a dead fly on the zafu. (laughs) So I I started, and then I went, ah, that's kind of the parts of me that are done, that I'm letting go of. So I just pushed it aside gently and sat down. Ah, and then soon a live one started buzzing in my ear. Immediately I swatted at it and had that something's wrong feeling again. It just keeps coming back. (laughs) We have an ongoing process of forgetting and the grace that we remember, we wake up, we go, oh yeah, this too. There might be a lag of a few minutes, a few hours, sometimes years. <laughs> but we do get it that the mud banks, the passions, the conditioning, the difficulties really can be the grounds of waking up. And how they become that? With mindfulness. In a moment that we recognize what's happening, we're no longer identified with it so much. This is Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows, who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Our lives become transformed as we really begin to relate to what arises with the respect and the care that we would any guest. Whatever it is, whatever the weather system, that there's a receptivity, a willingness to be with. 
Our waking up can be understood as a shift in identity. That when we're battling the demons, avoiding them, resisting them, we are identified with them. As I described the other day, it's the waves in the ocean. We are those waves. We forget the rest. And we're just living in a reactive and painful world. Remembering, a moment of remembering, of seeing the wave, of going, ah, this, is a moment of reconnecting with the whole, with the ocean, with our full being. It's not to get rid of a wave of experience. That's something we think we want to do, but that's not what frees us. It's the inclusion that we're big enough that we make the room to include what's there. When we do that, when this becomes more and more our way of relating to our experience, that we're willing to include, we begin to see what's called the jewel in the lotus, the heart of perfect wisdom. We begin to see how it is. We begin to see the nature of our own being and all being, which is that it's all changing. This is the first truth the Buddha pointed to, that of impermanence. When we stop running away, when we sit down in it, it becomes this changing flow of thoughts and sensations, feelings. Even the pattern of waves that we call self no longer is solid. Now, we experience this. We wake up to this sense that there's really no one there on a number of levels. One way we do it's in a broad way, that as we become more mindful and awake to how it all is, we sense that in different situations our experience is totally different. There's no one person home. You know this, depending on who you're with, how they're treating you, how the weather is, what you've eaten, the cycle of the moon. If you're in traffic, it's interesting who comes out in traffic, isn't it? Different parts of our being, there's no way to point to a personality or self. Several years ago, I taught a retreat that my mother came to. And she was sitting right in the front row. It was quite interesting. (laughs) And she was being very diligent. She she sat and put a lot of wholehearted effort into it. And one sitting in particular, she just racked sense. She was really absorbed. And after the sitting, she came over to me, and I kind of was wondering. I thought she had some Dharma question. And she kind of leaned over. And I was in kind of teacher mode, ready to be helpful if I could. So she, <laughs> so she leans over and whispers in my ear, Darling, I don't think you're eating enough. <laughs> so instantly I regressed, you know. I became 10 years old. Like, who's the person that was there a moment before? I just was this little kid. <laughs> So we see the broad waves that, ways that we just shift around. But then here at retreat, we begin, and, and when we're practicing at home, to look and investigate and see on even a much more subtle level. When we look closely, when our thoughts quiet down, who can we point to as a self? All there is is that changing flow of sensations and images and feelings. The Buddha teaches that our lives are a series of ever-changing processes and that there's not a single element that can be considered as unchanging self. That we arise like a temporary pattern of waves from the ocean of life. We're just this moving expression of waves. There's great freedom when we relax and open to that unbounded sense of being and sense the waves as an experience of belonging to the whole, empty of any enduring separate self nature. This is Rumi. I am water. I am the thorn that catches someone's clothing. There's nothing to believe 
Only when I quit believing in myself did I come into this beauty. Day and night I guarded the pearl of my soul. Now, in this ocean of pearling currents, I've lost track of which was mine. Our waking up is the waves realizing they are water. The Tibetans use the image of the sky, which is the same, that whatever arises comes and dissolves back into this vast open space of heart and mind. One way of describing this freedom, of being connected with the whole, of seeing in this way, of bodhicitta, of this opening, is that there's no boundary against what's unacceptable. Now normally, when we're in small self, we're defined by what's unacceptable. We have all these boundaries about what we don't like and what we like. One metaphor I like is to sense that our life is like this room and we're trying to control it perfectly, you know, keep the temperature a certain way and the smells a certain way and the sounds a certain way and just let certain people in and keep other people out and that we keep the windows closed a lot and it sometimes gets stale but it helps us to feel safe or at least like we're sort of in charge. And the practice of waking up is to gradually open the windows and doors because the more that's unacceptable, the more allergic we are to life, the more we suffer. So, you know, to begin to let it come in, to not resist so much. The Dharma encourages us to be receptive to life, to begin to open the doors and windows, to soften where we find something unacceptable. So just to take a few moments now, I thought we'd do a little guided experience with that, if you will, Just sit up if you're not, and just to close your eyes. In awakening bodhicitta, we begin to open the windows and doors. We notice what's unacceptable. So to invite you now to check in with whatever you're aware of, even either in your experience right now, or in the past hours or day, that definitely felt not okay, unacceptable. It might have been a certain emotion or mood, a behavior of your own or someone else's, a way of thinking. You might feel it strongly right now or not so, but just to bring that into awareness. Something that is or has felt unacceptable. If that feels difficult, more generally, a part of yourself that's just unacceptable. And taking moments now as you reflect on that, just let the word no come to mind. Keep saying no to it. No. No, shut it out. Keep the windows closed. Say no to what's unacceptable and feel what happens in your body. Using the word no. And then taking a deep breath. and then saying yes to it. The same experience, just in a soft way, saying yes. Let the yes be gentle and sincere. Simply saying the word yes, and sensing as you might that you can open the door, the windows, let this unacceptable experience just be. Sensing what has been unacceptable as a movement of water within the ocean of being. Just another weather system. Let it be.
sensing what has been unacceptable as a cloud or wind going through the sky. Continuing to meditate, if you'd like, or opening your eyes. This is from the classic Tibetan text. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping or resisting, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. It's exhausting to resist. It's freeing to say yes. It counters all our conditioning and frees us from a small sense of self. Any moment that we say yes to our experience, we become that ocean of awareness, of caring presence. The third Zen patriarch, Maharaj, was asked, was saying that the essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whenever may be the situation, whatever the situation, if it is acceptable, it is pleasant. If it is not acceptable, it is painful. Then someone asked him, but Maharaj, pain is not acceptable. And then he said, why not? Did you ever try? Do try and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. So wisdom refers to the mind's recognition of how it is, the changing, empty of self, illuminated, radiant being that we are. The heart's way of describing and experiencing it are usually in the terms of love and compassion. As we sense our inherent connectedness, we become increasingly sensitive to any ways that we feel separation. We open to this ocean of being. We sense the waves and open to the ocean and there's this inclusiveness. And then when there's the slightest bit of getting caught again, we become more and more aware of that as we go further into a retreat. Even certain thought forms can come into the mind and you can just feel the contraction, right, with the thought coming. And then the the way is just to relax the heart, relax the heart. At retreat, here we see that it's impermanent. We see that it's all passing, it's sand through our fingers, and we sense that this is our shared predicament. We're in it together. So compassion is the natural response. It's the natural response when we've honestly and caringly opened to the sense of separation and suffering in ourselves and all beings. Because we care, because there's this inherent awakening already happening in us, we try to open and touch what's there. We try to be with it. We come to retreat. We wouldn't be here if that inherent caring about life wasn't already present in our hearts. And by opening in that way, we really open to the aliveness and the heart of all beings. Mary Oliver writes this in The Invitation. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dreams, for the adventure of being alive. What I want to know is if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand on the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes.
So our practice comes back again and again to this willingness to touch what's there and the natural caring that comes from it and the natural sense of connectedness. Like the lotus, as we open, as we touch into what's there and open and caring, we are able to help all the beings around us with our warmth. I love the way Joko Beck describes it. She has this metaphor of us that we're all like ice cubes and we all have these edges and we're kind of bumping and knocking a little awkwardly but gradually, with the light and warmth of awareness, of mindfulness, we begin to melt. And any ice cube that's melting helps other ice cubes melt. <laughs> Isn't that true? <laughs> We're all just here melting. <laughs> that really is bodhicitta, this kind of melting, the melting of the armor that, that bounds our hearts the freeing of our hearts so that we can love fully. And what's so inspiring is that we can feel totally disconnected from that, but even the thought or the memory that we wish we could melt more, (laughs) we wish we could soften, we wish we could care. I know there are times that I feel totally disconnected from anything, and if I just say, I just wish I could care more right now, Just the wish brings me back home a little more to what's already there. Now sometimes our fear and our contraction is so great that it's very, very difficult to open to what's there, to open to our hearts, to open to what's so vulnerable. So a word on that. There are many people that because they've been traumatized early on have an enormous, enormous defense that's appropriately there to shield from from just the uh, bigness and the power of the vulnerability. So it needs to be done gradually. We don't open the the doors and windows to our room all at once. In fact, sometimes we need to close it and and take stock and resettle and reestablish a sense of it's okay and safety and humor and perspective and and then open it again a bit. There are many ways of doing that. Some, when we're here at retreat, when we hit that wall of fear, and I talked to several today that were describing that, it can be by going for a walk, or taking tea, or doing some metta when we can't do the direct vipassana practice of just facing and being with. Especially with fear, it's very, very powerful just to offer metta, to offer care in some way. Several years ago, one woman came to me and she said, I'm so close down, I can't offer metta to myself, I'm just totally caught in fear. But what I've been doing and what's helping a little is I imagine that I'm just resting in the arms of the Buddha. I'm resting in the heart of the Buddha. That there's this being outside of me. And when I do that, I relax some and then I can begin to offer myself the prayers. This is a quite fine and beautiful way, it's done in many traditions, to sense if we're feeling very small and very caught, to sense some form of love energy that's around us, whether it's somebody that matters a lot to us or some image or sense of of a bodhisattva or the Buddha. And just sense that 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 energy is holding or containing, caring for us, that we're held in that. Because whether we imagine it from the outside or the inside, it takes us back to our own boundless heart of care and compassion. It brings us back. Lao Tzu writes, The invincible shield of caring is a weapon from the sky against being dead. The fear, the grief, it's all too big unless we can bring the quality of caring or of heart to relate and care and be with that. Several years ago, a good friend of mine's son committed suicide. And it was really um, just a, just a heart-wrenching experience to, to be with her around it. And I was astonished at 
she was really upset and, and torn apart, but there was some way in which she could still walk. And she uh, gave a talk at, at the, during the services about how she felt so held in love, and without that she, she would have died. She said she would have had to commit suicide herself. She couldn't have borne the pain. Love allows us to bear the pain. The invincible shield of caring. We can't face life without that. This is a story of a Uruguayan political prisoner. Uh, in this story, it said that the prisoners cannot talk without permission, or whistle, or smile, or sing, or walk fast, or greet other prisoners, nor may they receive drawings of pregnant women, couples, butterflies, stars, or birds. Those are the rules. So, on Sunday, Didaco Perez, a school teacher, tortured and jailed for having ideological ideas, is visited by his daughter Malay, age five. She brings him a drawing of birds. The guards destroy it at the entrance of the jail. On the following Sunday, Malay brings him a drawing of trees. Trees are not forbidden and the drawing gets through. Didaco praises her work and asks about the colored circles scattered in the treetops, many small circles half hidden among the branches. Are they oranges? What fruit is it? The child puts her finger to her mouth. Shh. And she whispers in his ear, Silly, don't you see their eyes? They're the eyes of the birds that I've smuggled into you. Even when we forget, and we forget a lot, life is endlessly creative and bountiful. It will keep representing itself in all its flavor and glory. It's the nature of our hearts to wake up. It's just happening. And there's a tremendous freedom when we begin to trust that that's true. What helps us to do that is to notice the moments that we do feel a sense of, Ah, this, this is enough, just this. When our hearts are there and there's a sense of care, simple presence, the moments when we're sipping tea or taking that step when you're walking, you finally feel, ah, peaceful, just right there in that step, or watching that sunset yesterday or the snow falling. We are taught so much to notice how we get lost and notice our resistances It's a very powerful practice to notice the moments of freedom when there's no grasping, there's no resisting, there's that really blessed sense of, ah, this is enough. Some put it, I could die now. (laughs) You know that one. And when we're not there, to begin to remember, to intend, to intend to be present. It's really helpful at the beginning of a day or a sitting or a new year to touch into that intentionality to care, to open our hearts to what is. Part of our practice is to bring that to the present and to realize that in any moment that we are waking up, our capacity to care helps to serve the awakening of all beings. And it's part of many traditions to formally acknowledge that, that may this awakening, this freedom that I'm touching, be of benefit. So that's part of our intentionality too. So this is the way of bodhicitta. The bodhisattva, the one, the being that's awakening, walks this path where all the circumstances, whatever's happening, the mud banks of passions, are all here simply to help us wake up our hearts. Can we remember this? Can we move through these days, especially these precious moments at retreat, and let whatever arises be recognized as part of what's here, part of life's gift to wake us up, to wake up these hearts, and then to recognize as we wake what we awaken to, this heart of perfect wisdom, our own inner nature. So let's just take a few moments now to sit quietly.
as we open to this next moment and this new year. May our hearts awaken. May we care. May we live and love fully. And may the fruits of our practice be of benefit to all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.